Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, uh, especially if you are new or visiting. We do want to extend a special welcome to you. And any questions, comments, concerns uh, about anything you hear or see here about Jesus, uh, the gospel, God, the church, uh, why any of this even matters, uh, maybe you're going through something uh, personally that you want to talk it out, uh, please do not hesitate to speak with me or with any one of the other elders after service is over. We have Bob here, Dave's here, Joshua's singing right here. Just feel free to speak to any single one of us. Now at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 877. Page 877, Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, and uh, before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we come before you, and and we come before your word this morning, and we ask that you would show to us uh, wonderful things in it, and by the Holy Spirit, you would show to us the glory of Jesus Christ, by your grace, that you would give us a proper perspective on this life and the next one and of the joy of which can only come by knowing you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We pray these things for your glory in his name. Amen. Uh, What people pray and and how people pray can reveal uh, what is within the heart. It tells us what kind of people we are. And, And we're coming off of a parable where a seemingly powerless widow consumed with justice incessantly petitions an unjust judge for it. And she, against all odds, and without any obvious evidence that her constant requests are even doing anything at all to move the needle, she actually gets the justice she longs for, even from a horrible, wicked kind of person. And Jesus uses that imagery as a parable to encourage us to pray incessantly for, consumed with his coming kingdom, when all that is wrong will be made right. That we ought to pray and not lose heart. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even when it may often appear that the church is a powerless widow. When we pray like this, our hearts actually become more there with him than they are here with all of this momentary stuff. And our God is better than an unjust judge. And our prayer lives are going to reflect if we actually believe that to be true or not. And so we pray and do not lose heart. So that when he does return, he will find faith among us because, again, what we pray for tells us exactly what it is that we believe. That parable is now followed up with our parable this morning. Not what we pray for necessarily, but how. How we approach God reveals what we are actually like. It tells us who we are within. And there are two characters in this parable. One is pompous and one is penitent. And they are drawn uh, so sharply in contrast as to make Jesus' point ultra clear and unmistakable. But while this passage is about prayer and how it can reveal the heart, this passage is actually about much more than prayer. For the heart revealed tells us exactly if we are going to be saved or not. If persistent prayer for the kingdom to come, uh, the prayers exemplified there, Uh, show us about not losing heart. The prayer exemplified here tells us actually who's going to enter into that kingdom and who will not. This is one of the most well-known parables that Jesus has ever told and is quite foundational for our understanding of the gospel itself. Would you please look with me in verse 9? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. Jesus here has a target audience, those who are self-righteous and from that vantage point look down upon other people. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus is speaking directly to those people who do trust in themselves. He's not speaking about those people over there amongst a different group of people over here. Jesus is directly addressing those who trust in themselves and look down upon other people. He's looking them in the eye, and he gives to them this parable and puts them into a place of response. Now, the phrase, though uh, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, uh, it shows to us this kind of package deal of self-righteousness and looking down upon others, because these two things always come together, uh, always. When we have higher view of ourselves, we will inevitably have a lower view of those who are not up to our level. But self-righteousness and treating others with contempt is also not a combination that most of us readily identify with. And I don't think people generally wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and be like, that guy's self-righteous. And I love to look down on other people. We don't generally think of ourselves in this way. But how many times have you generally heard the answer to the question, if there were a heaven, would you go there? And the answer comes, yeah, I think so. Well, why? A common answer is because I am a good person. I try my best. Well, what makes you a good person? I don't lie, I don't murder, I don't rape, I don't steal, etc., etc., like other people do. That is simply trusting in ourselves that we are righteous and treating others with contempt. If there's anyone going to hell, it's that guy over there and definitely not me. It's a pretty prevalent mentality, perhaps the most predominant mentality in the world today. This is simply called the unpopular title, self-righteousness. I am good because I am not them. It is this relative morality that gains confidence in that morality by finding other people to look down upon from our own little perches. Self-righteousness has to depreciate somebody else. That's how we trust in ourselves more and more by comparison to those who are less trustworthy. This is how we self-adulate, by gossiping about those who do the things that we would never, ever do. And so rather than recoil at this opening verse that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt and therefore a waste of parable, I think we have to be open to the possibility that this is actually more prevalent within the world and within the church and within our very own hearts than we perhaps naturally want to confess it to be true. Uh, this is a parable for many, if not all of us. And the characters, again, are, are drawn in this exaggerated, stark contrast as to make Jesus' point ever clear. And so Jesus continues in verse 10 where he picks up the topic of prayer again. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Again, how we pray tells us what is within our hearts. How we approach God tells us the kind of person we are. And we have two people with their prayers going to the same area to pray and at the same time, and yet they couldn't be any more different. And the first example of prayer is from the arrogantly self-righteous. Now, if you have been to church for even a little while, we have been conditioned to think Pharisees are bad and tax collectors are good, so much so that we might immediately identify this Pharisee as the evil person, which would actually be the opposite assumption of the original hearers listening to this parable. Now, they absolutely will prove themselves to be wicked in their denial and murderous intent of Jesus, but that is not their reputation at this point in time, nor is that what characterizes the Pharisees for the sake of this parable. 
The Pharisee in the first century is the person who knew his Bible best, is conservative in the sense that he knew, he understood all of our people's troubles are because we've turned our back on God and upon his word. They are a people group, a movement really, whose theme is we need to return to Yahweh. We need to take this return to God so seriously, and we need to influence people to those ends. And so the Pharisees took these great efforts uh, to rid themselves and their families of anything that could contaminate them spiritually. And thus they came to hate with a passion anything that reeked of immorality. When this Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, this is not a lie. This man is not like them in that sense. He isn't shady. He doesn't take shortcuts. He's faithful to his wife. He's faithful to his family. When he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. When he sees injustice in the neighborhood and in the culture, he's shaking his head at it with you right next to him. I mean, this is the kind of guy you want to have as your next-door neighbor. He's respectable. He's a man of good reputation. I mean, morally, he checks all the boxes. In addition to that, this Pharisee is a religious man. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I don't know anybody here who fasts twice a week. Now, we don't know why he does this. Jesus hints at it in other places, but he does. And this kind of fasting takes quite a bit of discipline. And this is not lazy religion. This is effort-filled spiritual discipline. Tithing, the Old Testament law demanded a tithe of certain products. This Pharisee goes beyond, takes the tithe of everything. He's not going to miss a single offering. And so this is someone who is very generous in terms of giving. One commentator estimates that this is over 20% of his income. 20%. The average churchgoer today gives on average about 2%. And so this Pharisee is 10 times the giver of most people who call themselves Christian today. I mean, wouldn't we love to have more of these moral, generous, clean, upstanding citizens in our community? Wouldn't we love to have a church filled with generous, disciplined givers who are not lazy but work hard at their religion? And notice that this Pharisee actually thanks God for it all. His very opening line is, God, I thank you. I mean, he sure knows the right thing to say, doesn't he? He is theologically accurate. If I am like this, God made me like this. And so he knows that he should be grateful to God for his morality and spiritual maturity. And every listener of this parable in this setting would be thinking that that is a good man right there. But this entire prayer reeks of self-sufficiency, smugness, of which had become characteristic of religion in first century Judaism. This is why all the religious folks were always complaining, why is Jesus hanging out with those people over there? Those people are all broken and in need and diseased, and their skeletons are hanging all out of their closets. We know all of their drama. I mean, we are not like them. We don't have any sense of need at all. No sense of personal sin at all either, but we know about theirs. And this prayer is all boasting about achievements, morally, spiritually, merits. And we hear the rhythm in all the first-person pronouns. I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, it doesn't even feel like prayer. He's declaring to God his spiritual resume. If you're reading the ESV Church Bible, you're going to see a little number four in verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, and there's a small number four. And if you look at the bottom of the page where it says there is a four, the text 
says, or standing, comma, prayed to himself. Because that's actually another way the text could be translated. And I think that actually captures the spirit here. Outside of the initial, I thank God, which everyone opened up to uh, their prayers with because they should thank God for everyone, uh, everything that they are formally. Uh, outside of that initial, I thank God, it's like God doesn't even have to be there at all listening. He is praying almost to himself. Doug Milne, he summarized a prayer like this. He calls on God's name, but he worships himself. He does not thank God for who God is, but for what he is. He praises himself at the expense of other people. He lists the outstanding faults of others, but mentions none of his own. He boasts to God about his religious achievements as though God needed to be reminded. He talks endlessly about himself in the first person singular. He is a thorough egoist who knows nothing of humility, repentance, or love for others. His prayer is a soliloquy, not a dialogue. His relationship to God consists of one-way traffic from himself to God because he has no sense of needing anything from God. Such is the spirituality of man-centered religion, ancient and modern. Man is the measure and self is the center. God is present, but only as an audience, not a leader or lord of religion. And I think in modern times, we can look at this prayer and kind of scoff at the self-sufficiency of it and be like, why does this guy even pray? But in modern times, the same spirit of man is a measure, self is a center, calling on God and worshiping myself, it's not expressed in prayer nowadays, but really in a lack of it. In our self-sufficiency in our ages, I have too much practical things to do to devote time pointlessly to ask God for my needs when I can fulfill every single need of mine by myself. And so there is some contextualization that we need to hear for what the Pharisee does in prayer, we can do in our lack of it. But notice as well as, as that this religious man thinks of himself, uh, notice that how he measures everything externally. Don't be an extortioner like that guy, check. Don't be unjust like her, check. Uh, an adulterer like him, check, 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 and so on and so forth. And then positively, don't eat twice a week to prove that religious vigor, check. Cut that tithe with extreme accuracy, check. And people can do all of these external things and really not deal with the hell within their hearts. And because the outside is clean, they begin to actually think they are clean within when these Pharisees are going to be culpable for the murder of Jesus right here. It's what Jesus called the Pharisees out for earlier in Luke eleven thirty nine 39 and following. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and neglect the love of God. Now here is the craziest thing, I think. This Pharisee literally has no idea that he's in this disastrous of a spiritual situation. He doesn't think that he's actually pretty religiously bankrupt. He's in the temple, standing to pray, feeling right with God and feeling right with life. And if you ask this person, are you going to heaven? This person would say, absolutely yes. And why? Because I'm a good person, religious at that. And I'm not like any of those bozos out there. I have really sacrificed a lot for God. And he doesn't even realize that he's looking with one eye in the mirror, admiring the reflection and with the other eye down at the neighbor, scoffing at them. And there's no more eyes left to even behold God at all. And the craziest thing, I think, is that his heart is lying to him. And what may be utterly obvious to us, he doesn't even know. He does not even feel it. 
And this is where we see how deceptive self-righteousness can be and how blinding religious duty is. And so, how we pray, how we come to God, uh, it really tells us what is within our hearts. How we approach Him tells us really what kind of person we are. If we're wholly intent upon ourselves, nothing in our heart but self, our glory, our comfort, our plans, our praise, and not His, uh, with a self-righteousness so thick that it's almost like we have to despise our neighbor. I mean, this guy's prayer is almost like he's happy that other people are sinning. Why? Because it makes me look better. I'm as obsessed with other people's badness as I am with my own goodness. Matthew Henry calls this the Pharisee's address to God. He says, for a prayer, I cannot call it. And by this address, we know what kind of person he is. Verse 13, we find another man going to the same temple to pray at the same time to do so, and yet he couldn't be any more different. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This prayer stands in stark contrast to the one previous, and that's precisely the point, that contrast. All this man has is need. He doesn't even feel good enough to get close to the center of that temple. He can't even look upward. There is this devastated brokenness to him. Now, like the term Pharisee, uh, how we hear today versus how people heard it in the first century, vastly different. We think tax collector as Jesus' friend, disciple. Matthew was a tax collector, and we don't see the wretchedness of that life choice. But if you were a tax collector, I mean, these are the guys you hate. And no one's going to blame you for hating them. And it's been a couple of weeks um, after the fires began in Maui, and I know some are still uh, being contained. And, and there are great organizations and local churches that are using all of the money uh, they receive to help as many of the people displaced and in suffering as they can. You know, Pastor David Luther, the Zoom call that we had with Pastor Rocky and Pastor Van Michael, and, and they both, they keep a spreadsheet of every single penny that they spend and who that money goes to and what they purchase with it. Every single cent is accounted for in helping people uh, who are displaced, who have lost it all. And they're not taking money from that. They're, they're, they're just channeling it all. And, and so we see the goodness of humanity there in many ways. Uh, but we would be uh, naive to think that the human heart is also not such. That with all the good and noble relief work, that there will also be scammers that are capitalizing on the general public's emotional response to such trauma. Uh, it's the kind of response, and, and understandably so, that just wants to give and give quickly and liberally, and sometimes perhaps a little ignorantly. And people who want to scam can capitalize on these emotions and take that money for themselves. That if I can make money off of someone else's misfortune, I will, I'm going to do that. And there's a special kind of hard heart that is going to look at a hardship and use it for selfish monetary gain at the expense of his own people. That's the worst kind of people, right? That's the tax collector. And this is the scum of society. Israel as a people, they're conquered and oppressed by the Roman government, foreign powers, and, and Rome for whatever reason. They want local people. They want Jewish people. They want Israelites to be boots on the ground to get their tax money from the conquered population. No one with honor takes his job. No one with love for their country and their people would ever take this job. But there were some who did. And they did that to line their own pockets. They were obsessed with right here. Now, here's the thing. Not only did they sell out their own race and people by taking that job, but they also capitalized on the opportunity and got even more rich by upcharging those taxes. This much for Rome and this much for moi. How do they live such affluent lives? 
by lying and stealing from those who are oppressed. They were greedy, dishonest, the scum of the earth. Tax collectors are not the good guys, and they were hated for a reason. Jewish rabbis in court wouldn't even accept a tax collector's witness as valid. That's how low they were viewed. And so when you're hearing Pharisee tax collector in the first century, the Pharisee's good, and that guy is evil. But here's a contrast between these two men. The tax collector knows he's evil. He knows he's wicked. There's no mistake about it. He knows he's bad. He knows he's the scum of the earth. He knows, I can't get near the temple. That building represents the very presence of the Lord. I got to stay way out here, way far out. How dare I take a single step nearer? He knows. I don't have a spiritual resume to boast before the Lord. And he's not going to compare himself to other people like the Pharisee. Those people and their sins don't matter to me. I got enough sin of my own. And he's not offering resolutions based on external performances. You know what, God? I'm going to start fasting twice a week. I'll give up some money. I can this, and I can that, and I can blah, 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 and I can earn my way back if you just give me a second chance. I can make it right. There are no first-person pronouns where he is a focal point of any kind of action. No, this, this evil scum of the earth who is shady and traitorous, he knows it. He knows it so much so that far from the center of the temple, he won't even lift his eyes upward. He can't, but instead he beats his own chest to show his utter brokenness in the realization of what I am and of who I am, that the only claim I can have on God is that he might be merciful to me, the sinner. The only claim I have is something to be found in him and not in me. And we've seen this heart in other places. King David, after taking his sinful census, 2 Samuel 24, 10, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. Psalm 51, after his famous catalog of sins, David again in verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Paul, in contemplating his battle with iniquity in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Not Jesus Christ came into the world to save those who also help themselves. No, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or I am the chief of them all. When we ask for mercy like this, it's really putting ourselves in the posture of a beggar requesting alms offering nothing but penitence. No comparison game, no gossip, no perch. Well, at least I'm not like that guy, right? I mean, I know we've all made our mistakes, but who hasn't? But I haven't made those kinds of mistakes. No, in this tax collector's body language, lack of proximity, and single line of prayer, we find his heart and all that is within it that no one else compares to me in my fallenness. And this stands in stark contrast to the Pharisee that no one else compares to me in my righteousness. And so if we can tell the kind of person by their approach to God in prayer, here we find a keen consciousness of sin, a sorrow over it, lowliness and humility, and a trust in God's own mercy and divine adequacy because I am inadequate. We find a pretty accurate perception of who I am and who he is. 
And this is the portrait of the sinner before God. Verse 14, we have Jesus' conclusion. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How we pray, how we approach God tells us the kind of people we are. But this parable is about much more than prayer. Because how we approach him actually reveals the heart of the one who is saved and the heart of the one who is not saved. Now, again, no one in the first century is thinking that the tax collector is saved. No one's thinking that the Pharisee is going to hell. No one. And so when Jesus says the tax collector, this scum of the earth, is justified rather than the religious moral guy, this is a shocker of shockers. That term justified, it's, it's a legal term, really, that in a court of law, this person is declared righteous. Jesus is saying, task collector, face down, beating chest, asking for mercy. That's the one declared righteous. And Pharisees, standing alone, thanking God, impressive spiritual resume, not like other people, is declared not righteous. And the original crowd would gasp because this is a twist of twists because doesn't one deserve God more than the other? And the answer is none of them deserve God. But only one of them actually understands that. Both of them need mercy. Only one of them thinks he does. You know, there are these commercials on the radio. Are you over 40 and find your energy levels low? Losing muscle mass, feeling fatigue, lack of focus, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, boy, shh, I need to hear this. <laughs> and they're not listening. They don't care. And it's not for them. They don't think they need testosterone boosters. So they're not listening at all, except for the one who has all the symptoms. And I'm leaning in and trying to listen. The testosterone boosters, they're not the answer. But, but the point is, whether you feel your need or not is almost the entirety of the issue. I mean, you can see the same thing from a parent who has a child with cancer and the parent who has healthy children, how much the former is looking, searching, begging for a solution because they feel that need. And the one who doesn't, I mean, doesn't even spend a minute of their day thinking about the deadly disease. If you're good on your own, self-sufficient, not thinking you need to be saved or have a problem with sin at all, you're not going to be saved. And so much of the world today is diseased by this sin and, and utterly unaware of it and in denial of it for so much of humanity does not understand our human condition. And the ones who trust in themselves that they were righteous and treat others with contempt, they have a hard time believing that they even have to be saved. And therefore, they're not going to be saved when all is said and done because they aren't looking for cure, for condition. They don't even think they have. Thomas Watson famously says, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. If we don't feel that bitterness, we're never going to look to Jesus Christ. The gospel is such that we have turned our backs upon God. I mean, this world's broken. There's good things in it, absolutely. But it's full of diseases, disasters, greed, corruption, human trafficking, God dishonoring everything. The gospel is such that the evidence is everywhere that humanity, although created in the image of God, has turned away from God, that we are, in essence, rebellious, sinful, broken. We shouldn't even lift our eyes up to heaven. We need to stand far off and beat our own chest. And yet the gospel is this. God knows all of that, and God still loves us. So much so that the Son of God, God himself, descends to us to be born in a manger. He lives life 
as a human being, just like us, in being born, growing up, living life, working, getting splinters, exactly like us, and yet he's totally unlike us, and that he never sins. He's not broken. He never turns his back on God. He lives a life that we have never lived, sinlessly. Why? So he could hold it over our heads? Ha ha, I can be done. I told you. No, because Jesus Christ, sinless and perfect, is heading to a cross to die in our place, to absorb the righteous wrath of God against our iniquity upon himself instead of us. Jesus shields us from righteous judgment by being judged in our place, the sinless in place of the sinful. This is called substitutionary atonement. This is the only way that the unrighteous can be called righteous or justified because the righteous has been treated as if he were unrighteous so that the unrighteous will never have to be. This is the great exchange. And that payment on the believer's behalf is proven by Jesus' own bodily resurrection from the grave. And when we look at the horrors of horrors, at the holy, innocent, blameless, perfect Son of God really being slaughtered upon a criminal's cross, and that's just what we see visually, let alone the Father's face being turned away from him, and enduring the wrath of God against sin itself. When we look at the horrors there, then we begin to understand the horror of that which exists in the human heart and the wretchedness therein, that it takes that to cleanse me. It takes that to wash away my stains. And until we realize that more and more, we're never going to appreciate or worship or center our lives around Jesus more than we center our lives around ourselves. And instead, we're going to admire ourselves and disdain others as a hobby of ours to try and find and make ourselves feel better. But the one, like the tax collector, can see the scene on Calvary and say, yeah, it does take all of that because my sin is that deep. And the Pharisee scoffs, you don't need to do that for me. I'm good. No thank you. Both, again, are unrighteous in different ways. Only one understands it and finds any beauty in the gospel at all and in the cross beheld. And it's only that one who can be declared righteous by a righteous God because that one's sinfulness is carried to the cross by the Son of God himself and not the other persons. And if you're not a Christian this morning, the only way to be saved, the only way to be righteous is really to look away from yourself and look to Jesus Christ. And in looking to him, you only got two eyes. You have to look away. You have to turn away from how you were living prior. If this is what you want, please come and speak with me or with any one of the elders after service is over if you want to know more about this. If you are a Christian this morning already, I think the biggest temptation, our natural bent over time, is to be more and more like a Pharisee in our day-to-day, so much so that we lose sight that we had ever been a tax collector at all. That in the name of holiness and sanctification, we can so easily develop what Jesus has called the plank eye of Matthew 7, where we can see even the slightest speck in another person's eye while ignoring this gigantic log in our own. And we can look at the unbelieving world and want some type of conservative revival and a return to God for the masses, which is all good and fine. Everybody needs Jesus. But then we start to look and think that they need Jesus at least a little bit more than I need Jesus. They need Jesus in a slightly different way than I need him. 
And from that perch, look down upon the people who are not up to my level, feeling annoyed by those who are not as mature as we are, or theologically accurate as we are, or biblically sound as me, 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 and scoffing. How could anyone ever live or believe like that? We can see the same plank eye issue spring up in our marriages. My spouse suspect I can't believe it. And you know what? You're likely right. Your husband, your wife has issues. But we can exegete those issues, dissect them, write a 50-page thesis on them, and have a log dangling from our own faces and think we aren't contributing to the problem at all. I mean, brothers and sisters, we're going to be prone post-conversion. This is after we come to know Jesus. And as we continue to grow in the Lord, we're going to be prone to forgetting the very heart of the gospel itself and instead climb these little ladders of self-righteousness and pride and then be useless for the kingdom of God whose only entrance into it is by grace and by grace alone. If you find yourself constantly irritated at this or that person and whatnot with one eye on our own performance and the other eye on those who don't perform, we got no eyes left to be even behold God and glorify him. And, and perhaps the drama that God is bringing you providentially in your life to is really a gracious alert for you to come back to the foot of the cross again and remember the amazing grace afforded to tax collectors like us so that we might be vehicles of grace to the ones who need it just as much as we do. So much of our ongoing sanctification as Christians is really intertwined with an ongoing awareness of our own hearts and there having an increasing appropriation of Jesus Christ to those hearts. And brothers and sisters, we have to come back to Jesus. There's a one solution to almost everything you're going through. You come to Jesus and be melted again by his amazing grace and his love for the further we get away from this, the further we get away from the gospel the further we get away from the grace that saves us. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let us be humble, church family. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Where would we be without it? Uh, we're so prone to, to climbing up on our little perches and we're so prone to being expert in another, experts in other people's sins and, and novices in understanding our own. And I pray by your grace and by your mercy, God, you would make us a people, both eyes to you, both eyes upon Christ. Would you display his glory for us to see? And low as we are, would you bring us close to you and have the joy that only comes from being known by you and knowing you. I pray that you would help us be a humble church family and that we might humbly go out to the ends of the earth to preach amazing grace. Would this be our highest joy, our greatest call in which you fulfill it through us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.